This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. During the COVID lockdown, pianist Orly Shaha managed to record all 18 of Mozart's piano sonatas. It's been kind of a life-changing experience for her. She's learned so much about herself, especially the ability to improvise. No easy task for any musician, but especially when you've spent your whole career playing the notes on the page. She talks more about what she's learned as she has gone through this process, and she just released volumes two and three of these complete sonatas. It's what you're going to hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. You have just put out volumes two and three of the complete piano sonatas by Mozart. Why is it so important to you to record all of Mozart's piano sonatas? You know, I I learned so many of these sonatas as a kid, and of course so many pianists play them, you hear them, but when I realized what the totality of uh, the complete works really signifies, it's really a journey through his entire life. It's his sort of first calling card, that six sonatas that he first set out on tour with, and it runs through his in, the rest of his life pretty much to the last year and a half. So you can see what he's experimenting with, what he's playing around with, what he's learned, what, what the various new uh, keyboard instruments that he encounters have inspired him to do, you know, the things that he's really pushing forward. And it's um, it just fascinating to do that journey, to really see the, the totality of it. And I feel like I've learned so much from this project that I would never have learned if I just did a, a few here or a few there. It's been a personal journey for you as well. Can you talk about that and maybe what you've discovered about yourself along the way so far? <laughs> well, I think one of my uh, one of my big goals was to uh, feel more comfortable and more at home in the kind of improvisatory style that uh, Mozart would have been himself performing in any time he appeared in public. So, you know, I'm very much of the the school of classical piano that, you know, I play the notes that are on the page, right? That's that's how I was taught and I was raised. And then people talked about improvising. I never really understood what that meant, but in doing 18 sonatas and in adding at least a little something to pretty much every repeat, except for the ones where he had already added plenty, I, I've gotten gained so much experience in trying to understand his language, trying to figure out how he builds the the extra notes that he might put in on on this beautiful skeleton that he creates for a work. So it's completely transformed my way of looking at it. And in fact, I feel very much informed by jazz musicians of today who are always sort of pushing those boundaries and trying to figure out what actually fits here without breaking the initial mold and what highlights it and in what way does it build emotionally. That was a journey that I'd really never explored before except, you know, for a little passage here or there, but to do it this much was so satisfying. There are not a lot of classical musicians who are comfortable with that improvisatory approach. Mm -hmm. How did you gain comfort in that zone? Like, like anything else, right? Practice, practice, practice. Um, I uh, was 
just testing things out for months on end before we started. And then I finally uh, would narrow it down the night before the, the recording of that particular movement. I'd say to myself, okay, well, Mozart, you know, when he would write his own things in the autographs, which were just notes to himself about where he'd like to get, but they weren't ever actually the, in many places, they weren't the, the full notes, right? They were just his, his shorthand for how he'd like to get where. Um, so I would do that for myself the night before. And then in the recording session, we actually recorded it many different ways. So it's the first time in my life that I had in the editing process something that jazz musicians deal with all the time, which is which take had better notes and <laughs> not which take just, you know, sounded better with dynamics or this or that, but literally which were the better notes. <laughs> I was wondering how was that? Because I was reading about that thinking, wow, did that make it more challenging or was it easier? Like, oh, yeah, you know, this one is absolutely the best one right here. I mean, was that harder or easier for you? There were a couple that it was clear, you know, this one just really took off. But, you know, overall, it was um, it was an interesting process. So my producer, Erica Brenner, who's just fabulous, she was very good about taking at least complete movements or at the very least complete halves of movements with their ornaments because there's a logic to them, right? They're not, it's not just an ornament in its place. It's what are you adding in the course of the, of the form and how does that actually build up the emotional impact of that form? So we, we never just uh, extracted one little ornament from here because it wouldn't make sense in sequence with everything else that was there. I know that one thing you're trying to do in these two volumes, two and three, is to capture the spontaneous feeling of live performance. How are you doing that? Well, that's part of it is the improvisatory nature. Like I say, I didn't plan which you know trajectory I would necessarily do with each take. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I like when I'm recording, I like to feel like I'm performing for somebody. So somebody many years ago gave me a, the tip of sort of imagining just the one person, the one person that you really want to play this piece for uh, and recording for them so that it has that feeling of total spontaneity. And I usually for me, that's the composer. Every once in a while, it might be, you know, uh, a particular pianist whom I really admire and how they play a repertoire. And so I'm imagining them or, you know, somebody in my life that I think would really love that piece. But that that single person in my mind, I think, helps make it possible for the recording in the end to be really from me to the listener, whoever that is. So it, the fact that it's I make it individual, I think, allows for it to be received individually. How does that act of improvisation allow you to feel, in a sense what Mozart would have felt as he was writing or performing these pieces? Okay, that's a that's a great question because I, I thought about that so much. Like, oh, look at you, you're being Mozart. Of course, I'm I'm not, and I'm not even close to, you know, anywhere near as creative and as free and as natural and as, as fluent as he was with those things. But I did feel like through the course of this project, I got a little bit of a taste of what it would have felt like to be Mozart, and I think it was probably exhausting <laughs> because the guy had so many ideas just running through his system all the time. And, you know, most of us, when we, when we have ideas, it's pretty easy to rule some of them out because they're just not good. <laughs> but that was not the case with his ideas. They're all great, and he was having to pick and choose. So I, I, it must have been a, a difficult brain to live in, is all I can say. <laughs> 
being creative was really key to the process of making these two volumes. And I know that for many pianists, they might look at these pieces and put them up on a pedestal and say, nope, nope, can't change them in any way. However, Mozart himself intended for them to be changed. Mm-hmm. and wanted the pianist to kind of create around it. So talk about you, your role as the creator in these pieces. Well, and in fact, he teaches us what it is that he wants. There, uh, Some of the sonatas were published in his lifetime, and occasionally he would even put uh, or allow uh, a decorated version to come in the repeat in the published version. For example, in the slow movement of the F major, K332, he he wrote it out. so that you can see what he might have thought about when he was putting something like that together. And there are certainly places within the sonatas where something repeats and is just naturally uh, ornamented or elaborated upon the second and third time in his writing. And so you can really begin to understand, again, it's all about the emotional affect. What is he trying to make happen this time that he couldn't the first time? You know, he's building on the information. It's like first he shows you this beautiful thing, and it's it's gorgeous. And then each time he gets there, he's pointing out something particularly special in that view or particularly important to, to see or, or feel. And that that process is, is already baked into the music. So it was really the part of the whole thing for me was just being really open to receiving those ideas that he's he's already put in there. He also intended for these pieces to be used as teaching tools. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about how he might have used these as tools for teaching? Yeah, well, you know, two different ways. I think I always knew in my mind, of course, he used them to teach his piano students, most of whom were, you know, young ladies who were um, told that this was a good use of their time. <laughs> And most of those teaching situations was really Mozart saying, OK, I, I, need, I need dinner money <laughs> in some way, or this young lady's father will support my next concert, that sort of thing. But some of them were incredibly talented, and they were ones who really inspired him, not only as performers, but many of them themselves were also composers. So I think he very specifically intends some of these to teach the fingers. And boy, does he ever. I mean, once you play all 18, you're physically, your fingers just feel great. The the quickness, the lightness, the technique, just they move. I, I always say Mozart's a great cure. If you, if you ever feel any arthritic pain, play Mozart at the piano. It's so good. It's exactly what the doctors recommend <laughs> in terms of movement. But then the other side of it is he's also kind of giving them templates on which to compose and on which to improvise and clearly providing some insight in some places about where to go. So I, I, I find that particularly interesting, that he wasn't only teaching pianists, he was also teaching composers. That's really fascinating. I want to start talking about some of the individual sonatas. Before I do that, though, how many more sonatas do you have to record? 
Uh, well, they're all recorded amazingly. Uh, you know, we managed to get all 18 in the can, and the rest of them, so volumes 4, 5, and 6, will be out within the next 12 months. We're in the process of editing right now. And I, I'm so grateful to my team for having gotten these recorded. You know, we recorded the first 12 pre-pandemic in August 2019, and then we were scheduled to record six more in August 2020, uh, the idea being that the hall and the piano sound the same at, at the same time of year with the same levels of humidity. So we really wanted that consistency. We wanted to record at the same time of year. But in August 2020, there wasn't a whole lot going on just yet, if you may recall. So that was an adventure in itself, that whole project. We upgraded the uh, Wi-Fi and <laughs> internet capabilities of the hall ourselves <laughs> personally, um, and my you know producer was uh, Erica Brenner was remote in Cleveland. My piano technician could only come in for the day because she wasn't allowed to stay overnight in the state. You know my engineer had to come in several days earlier and quarantine, and the hall was empty. It was really just three of us in there, and. Um, Everything was going just swimmingly, really fantastic. We were using, I think it was 27 different apps to make it all work so that my producer could be remote. And, and of course, this was brand new at the time. Nobody had done it. And everything was going just super well. And we were recording the C minor sonata, which is probably the most emotional one of, of the bunch. And usually when I finish playing a movement, my producer will get on and say, you know, good job, Orly. Here's what we need to, you know, do for the next time. You know, it's part of the producer's job is to be cheerleader, right? <laughs> and uh, I finished and nothing. Radio silence. She wasn't there. We'd lost the connection. And, I, you know, my heart sank. Luckily, my incredible engineer had recorded it anyway. So we had the audio. She just hadn't been able to hear it. It turned out that the internet, which had we had upgraded for the hall, had gone down for a four-block radius. <laughs> and we had to completely regroup. I, but we were able, it, just amazing, an amazing team. We were able to do it, and even in the original time frame intended. So I, I'm so grateful. The opening theme of Mozart's Sonata No. 4 in E-flat major, K282, is very simple. And it's Mozart's way of applying the absolute minimum to create musical beauty. And you have said that it's like a teacher who brings out the best in their students. Can hmm. you talk more about that, please? Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm channeling, because that was the first, very first Mozart Sonata I ever played. I must have been eight uh, well, I guess it's not the first. I played the little C major, but I didn't think about that one because it's you know that's the one. It was the first one I played in America. It's the first one I played with my my teacher at Juilliard. It's the first one I re that really sank in with me. Um, and yeah, there's something about what he's doing. He's sort of coaxing the notes out. You know, those first six sonatas are all in very different styles from each other. And I didn't know this before, but. They had been written as a set of six for him to take around with him on his first big tours um, around Europe. So he was at you know, the ripe old age of 19 when, <laughs> when he took these around. And he was clearly trying to show his mastery of everything that existed at the time. And there's something about this fourth one that's so intimate and so simple and yet so lyrical and beautiful. 
you can't help but be drawn into that that opening. And once you're sucked in, then, you know, he's got you. In the sonata number 16 in C major, K545, Mozart is encouraging the pianist to make it their own. Can you talk about how you did that? And especially in that third movement where you color way outside the lines? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I figured if I'm making a complete set, there should be at least one example of how to just go wild, right? (laughs) <laughs> um, and that's that's it. You know, to me, that sonata, it's, it's, it's subtitled for beginners. Uh, and I think in certain ways it is physically for beginners. But the reality is that there's a lot of emotional complexity in that sonata. The second movement, it's, it's no joke. There's some, some deep, reflective moments. And even that first movement. If this really were a sonata for beginners, he would have he would have written the form in a completely different way. It's deceptive. It seems like he's making it the simplest it could be, but actually he's he's adding some extra complexity. I won't get into all of it, but he, you know, he starts on the subdominant. He could in the recapitulation, he could just repeat what he's doing, but he doesn't. He does some extra harmonic twists in order to get there. So it, there's, a de- there's a deceptive quality to that sonata. It's not as simple as it seems at first glance. And to me, the third movement is exactly the same. He, what's written is, is precise repetition of the same simple idea over and over again. And we know that Mozart would never have precisely repeated anything, let alone over and over. Maybe twice if there's some great reason to do so, but he that was not how he lived his life. So he was always out for adventure. So I thought, this is the one to go crazy with. Everything I did is within the rules of of ornaments, you know. Uh, But I just decided that if he were in a good mood at a party, he he would not have held back. I just had this flash of, like, Gershwin or Bernstein when you said that, playing at a party. (laughs) Mozart was still a teenager when he wrote the Sonata No. 5 in G major, K283, and he was already steering things in a new direction. Can you talk about how he was doing that? And I know it relates to the way the beat falls. I was just going to say, yeah, he's he's just playing around with where the downbeat is in that sonata, in that first movement. So, you know, one of the most important concepts in, in music in general, but certainly in the classical period, is the idea of the upbeat. The, the thing that comes before the pulse and that propels you to the pulse. Um, you know, music, unlike 
the visual arts, for example, music exists in time. If we all went to a museum together and looked at a painting, you could take your time, I could take my time, and we would end up seeing the painting, but in completely different time frame. But if we all sit in a concert hall, that music takes place at the same amount of time for all of us. And in order to exist in time, it has to be moving forward in time because we don't have any other means of accessing time. So this upbeat, the thing that pushes you to the next thing, that yep, you know, that thing that just gets you going, um, is super important in music in general, certainly at that time. So in this sonata, he plays around with that idea of the upbeat. And one, and one. So he keeps giving you that thing. But in the middle of that movement, he suddenly, in this part I can't sing at all, if you call what I just did singing. Um, the middle part, he just takes, he get, takes the and out of it. And everything's just on one. And one. And he's fooling with your sense of where actually is the beat in a way that I think was so clever in many ways quite ahead of its time. It's not that other people weren't being playful with things like that, but he was 19. You know, to have really understood that concept to that extent and be able to be so uh, fluent in the different ways of using it, quite exceptional. Mozart wrote only two minor key piano sonatas, and the sonata in A minor, number 9, K310, opens volume two, and this is a work that you have lived with for a while. How have your ideas about this piece changed over time? Oh, wow, they've they've changed enormously. I think, you know, when I grew up, there were two radically different ways of playing the sonata. One was, because of its minor key and all of the sort of pathos in it. One, one way was in, in an incredibly overly romanticized, um, stylized version, which was absolutely more in the 1830s and 40s than in the 1780s. And the other way when I was growing up was to do it sort of as classical as possible without any of that and not allow for the opening of that emotional valve. And I think we've come to a place now where maybe we can have the best of both worlds. Uh, maybe we can understand what he was opening up towards the future and understand that we may be hearing it as the audience of the future and what we need to take that in. And also at the same time, be respectful of the norms of the day. So I think this is a unique sonata. I think he intended for a unique sound. Uh, he, he puts in such endless notes. There are no breaks, there are no breaths in that first movement. In a way that is completely different compositionally than all of the sonatas that preceded it. And I think he's intending for something. You know, so to me, this is a very, very moving, impassioned plea. It was written right around the same time as his E minor sonata for uh, piano and violin, and both were written around the time that his mother passed away. There's some, some question in the dating about 
which came first, you know, the chicken or the egg. But um, but somewhere in here, I think he was dealing with deep emotions that were were not what he always opened up to in his music. So um, I, I very much lean into that and, and yet try to be stylistically informed about how I do it. Volume 2 closes out with a sonata that you refer to almost as like a Jupiter sonata. If if the piano sonata had a Jupiter symphony, this would be it. Tell me more about that. Why Why do you describe this sonata in D major this way? I mean, first of all, D major, right? This is the happiest key. Mozart just loved this key's all exuberance and joy and reaching for the, the greatest heights, whatever, however you do that. So he's he tosses in tons of counterpoint, really fancy, learned stuff in his writing and lots of virtuosity. And he, he's he's doing it very orchestrally. You know, you can you can feel with Mozart a lot of vocal writing in the piano sonatas and a lot of different colors of different instruments in many places. But in this sonata, I feel like really none of the notes belong to the piano. They all belong to the orchestra. We just happen to be playing them on the keyboard. Um, and I think he was he was certainly at that stage in his symphonic writing life as well. So you can you can hear the influences of the things he's learned from the symphony that he's tossing in here. I got a kick out of you saying that this piece reminded you of when Chico Marx would play the piano. <laughs> and so, of course, you know what I had to do. I had to immediately go online and start looking up Chico Marx videos. And, I mean, I could not believe his hands. Like, his <laughs> fingers are just like noodles going across the keyboard and he he was just having so much fun playing tell me more about why it reminded you of him well i mean he's he, you're totally right and by the way watching chico marx play the piano is pretty much the best use of your time so i think i think you really nailed it there um, you know, such a virtuoso, and Chico was not limited by traditional use of the hand. And in many ways, Mozart wasn't in this, too. He was pushing the boundaries of what would be acceptable use of the virtuosity of the fingers, the, the speediness of them. There's a reason that this sonata is, you know, considered sort of the for fingers, the, the pinnacle for pianists. You know, it's if you can play this one, you must have great fingers, uh, is, is the adage. because everything's just moving so fast and he's he's not at all limited by what you would think of as as natural movement and yet it is all completely natural. I also think of you know Chico I think Chico and and Wolfi would have gotten along quite well. Um, there's a lot of humor in Mozart's music and you could imagine that at the piano he was just communicating all the time um, and in a way that was occasionally very serious and very emotional, very heartfelt, but in sometimes really didn't take himself seriously and was just enjoying the the natural ability that he had. I think they I think they would have they would have had a good time together. <laughs> I think you're right. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how the power of music is primal. That idea that 
came home to you when you had your first child and how that relates to the singing quality that we hear in these sonatas. Yeah. Well, you know, the my my story with singing is and I don't know how many how many people still sing on a daily basis these days. When I was a student, I had to sing all the time because pianists had to be in the chorus. And basically the day that I graduated, I stopped singing, right? And then singing was just not a part of my life, even though I was a musician for the next 15 years. And I had uh, twin boys 15 years ago. And within hours of giving birth to them, I basically... All I wanted to do was to sing to them. And I would sing to them, you know, I don't know, six, seven hours a day, you know. And, and it just felt so natural, so primal, so um, so real. And you you know that this has been in the history of our species. This is this was probably the first vocalized communication. Even when, when other primates communicate, there's intonation to it, right? There's already a singing quality, even though they're, they're not verbal. Um, so I think there's something about that which is, is so um, visceral that you can really feel it. And for Mozart, the connection to singing and to theater, Mozart was a, he was a dramatic guy. He was all about the theater and the, you know, the storyline and the plot and the what is it going to look like on stage and, and how, how's the singer going to intone it. And he puts that in, you know, almost all of the second movements of all of the sonatas you could imagine as an aria or a duet in an opera. Really, he's, he's constantly connected to the human voice. There's one more sonata I want to ask you about. The final sonata in the third volume is number 11, K331. What is most interesting to you about this sonata? Well, you know, this sonata has probably the single most famous movement of any of the sonatas, the Rondo alla Turca. Uh, but that's maybe not the thing that's most interesting to me in the sonata. I, I find the the first movement of this sonata to be so special. One of those things when when Mozart writes a Sicilian. Um, and when he writes variations, it's un- very unusual. The first movement; it's the only one in variation form. Um, where he is able to plumb the depths of our humanity in each variation. So, you know, you get a, it's like, it was like the original sound bites. You get like a minute 30 seconds on, uh, on all of this emotion. And then you switch. And then you get another 30 seconds on all of that one. And then. He's so good at that. He's so. um, 
he's so clear in his vision what it is that he's trying to say, you know, that really not a note is wasted. And of course, that's, it's the classic thing one says about Mozart, but you say it because it's so true, you know, not too many notes, only as many as he needed. Volumes 2 and 3 of the Complete Piano Sonatas by Mozart, featuring pianist Orly Shaham. I'm Julie Elmacher, with thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media.